This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Spark My Muse. I'm your host, Lisa DeLay, and today my guest is Marlena Graves, and we're going to be talking about her book, The Way Up is Down, Becoming Yourself by Forgetting Yourself with Inner Varsity Press. Thank you, Marlena, for being my guest today. Oh, I am super excited to be your guest, so thank you for having me. This is really a great book that teaches us a lot about things we already know, but underscores a lot of things in more serious ways and more in-depth ways. And I noticed something right away that I really appreciated. Right away on page six, you get into something called kenosis. And that is a really powerful feature of the book, but also something that we should learn about in spiritual formation. And maybe you can give us, without giving everything away, of course, but give us a taste of what kenosis is and what's in store in the book for that. Yes, I mean, kenosis is, uh, you know, Greek word uh, theologians use, and I don't go heavy hitting on all the Greek and all that jazz in my book. But kenosis is, um, means self-offering or self-emptying, and it's really highlighted in Philippians 2, where um, Paul says, have this mind in you that it was in Christ Jesus, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. And it talks about uh, considering others above yourselves. And I noticed that this is the posture that Jesus took his entire life, the posture of a servant. It's also connected mm. to where Jesus says in the Gospels, I believe it's on Matthew 19, where many of the last shall be first and the first shall be mm. last. And uh, elsewhere where Jesus says the greatest in the kingdom will be the servant of all when um, James and John's mother said, you know, can they sit on either side of you when your kingdom comes? Mm. Like, that's not for me to say, but can you... Uh, will you be able to drink this cup? And, um, you know, they wanted to be on either side of, of Jesus when kingdom comes and uh, their mother asked for them. But he says, you know, many of the last shall be first and the greatest will be the servant of all. And of course, um, in John, uh, in the upper room discourse, I John, uh, we're at, is it 13? We're er, 17 too, where Jesus talks about, you know, he shows them what, servanthood looks like and peter's like hey you know wash my whole body and <laughs> jesus like well you've been washed you just need your feet washed and he says to them you don't understand what i'm telling you now but you will later um mm -hmm. and so that that the god of the universe the one that created all worlds and possible worlds chose to come to earth as a poor pauper not in living in palatial quarters not as the ruler of all he also says elsewhere you know the Gentiles lorded over people, but not so with you. And that's mm. Jesus's posture his entire life. And that's what we are called to do, empty ourselves of our power and our rights. Now, I'm not talking about not necessarily civil rights, uh, but I'm talking about personal rights, you know, the right to vengeance that, you know, God says, you know, you have heard... Um, love love your neighbor and hate your enemies but i tell you to love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you that kind of stuff where mm. i guess to sum it up about kenosis the way i think about it is and the way i talk about it in the book is like we empty ourselves of all that in, in us that is not of god it's not emptying ourselves or our personality our gifts our aspirations but the godlessness in us 
we or the desire to be first and to rule over people, we empty ourselves mm-hmm. of that, lay at the feet of Jesus so that we don't crowd out God's life in us. Because when we're trying to assert ourselves above other people, to rule over them, to put them in their place, to be first, that's not the way of Jesus. He says, you have to lay that all aside. And mm-hmm. um, and so whatever crowds out God's life in us, we have to empty ourselves. And sometimes it's our, you know, Paul wanted to go this way and then he got the Macedonian call. Uh, so sometimes it's our will we have to lay down, just like Jesus says, not my will, but thine be done. And we pray that in the Lord's prayer. Uh, so that's what kenosis is. And you can also see it in um, when Paul talks about Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know, give your body up as a living sacrifice, be renewed by the transforming of your mind so you can understand what God's perfect will is. So that's kind of a quick tour of <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's, it is very central. One of the places in the book you say, kenosis is a voluntary self-emptying of a renunciation of my will in favor of God's. It's a life characterized by self-giving. And later you say central is prayer and fasting. And really what we're talking about is that turning over of our ego or our self-ambition and letting God lead the way, which sounds so simple, <laughs> except yeah. for, you know, we, we have our selfish ambitions and we have our way and we don't always want God's timing or God's way in our lives. and you sort of open the book with something about having a really hard time, a time of suffering, a time of questioning God and wondering what is going on, God. Part of the Christian life and part of your life, of course, and and every Christian's life is sometimes wondering what is that will of God and what, what is the place of suffering and God kind of taking us through a path that leads us to kenosis too. And maybe you can talk a little bit about some of your background for people who don't know you, some of your background that, and maybe even, I'm not sure that this is covered in the book, but I was personally curious as to how you became, how you came to the Lord in the first place. Yeah. uh, Thank you for asking Lisa. Um, So I, you know, I would say grew up very poor. um, And and I know we have talked about that and, uh, (laughs) you know, mm-hmm. putting water in the shampoo uh, bottle, you can identify <laughs> in some ways, but being a, uh, having a free lunch because I couldn't afford um, lunches. And sometimes lunch was my only meal. If, you know, mm-hmm. we were waiting for a paycheck and sometimes, you know, I'd come home, there's no food in the refrigerator except maybe milk and um maybe a little bit of bread or, and then my abuelita would make what is known as flat bread out of, I remember one time I said, abuela, you make it so well. My Puerto Rican, my abuela, you know, abuelita lived with us for a while or across the street from us at different parts of my life. She was my roommate. Sometimes she lives across the street. Sometimes she lived with us. Um, Mm -hmm. She was my roommate for like my junior high through college until she died. She showed me how to make, you know, the, you know, flour, oil and water. And to just mm. fry it on a pan if we were really hungry and we had some flour. But, you know, that's what people order at restaurants now, flatbread, and they put different things on it. But that's not how I knew it. <laughs> I was like, there's, <laughs> when there's nothing to eat, that's what you eat. And, you know, there were a combination of factors. I think, you know, I, I talk about my dad, and um, who I love dearly. And I think in my 30s, we found out he had bipolar, which explains some of that. Mm. 
um, which was hard to keep jobs. He was always a hard worker and a wonderful person. So obviously we know that doesn't have anything to do with a generous and kind heart or, you know, mental illness. Mm -hmm. But some of it was we grew up, um, you know, I was born in Puerto Rico, lived there only for a few years and then also in fourth grade. But besides that, most of the time I was on the mainland and we lived where my dad grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Tip of Appalachia. And it used to be a very rich place. You'd see very fine, big houses because I think that's where oil was first discovered, drilled. And um, but then, you know, the oil moved probably south to Texas or wherever it went, left the area and left the area impoverished. And so mm -hmm. jobs were hard to come by, too. So so those are just a factors. And also, I lived in the largest geographical school district in Pennsylvania, meaning it took the longest for me to get on the bus to go to school. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and at that time we had long distance, you know, and you may remember that. And yeah. we didn't really <laughs> afford to call long distance that much. Sometimes we had it for a little bit and sometimes we didn't. And so mm -hmm. all my friends were long distance from me. So I could not, you know, I didn't mm -hmm. do a lot of the chatting on the phone that a lot of people did for hours. <laughs> I don't even know if yeah. that's my personality to sit there and talk about nothing, but <laughs> <laughs> for on the phone while you know you did something else but anyway so I was really isolated in poverty mm -hmm. I think it's also my personality Lisa you know growing up I I learned this all later after the fact but I think I I have monastic leanings other people have said that of me you know my seminarian mm -hmm. uh the people in my seminary cohort it's like you know Marlena you're like a modern day mystic I'm like at the time I didn't know exactly what they meant you know I'm like oh, I'm just reading the bible and praying like everyone else what's you know what are you talking about <laughs> Um, and I'm still not sure. Don't we all have to contemplate God? I, 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 I don't see a lot of the divide there. But um, I think it was f kind of functioned as a wilderness cell for me, that poverty, mm. that isolation. And um, so how did I come to the Lord? I, I did talk. I think I talked about it in my last book or watching Abuelita read her Bible. Mm -hmm. um, she only had a third grade education because her I think her mother died in childbirth and there were 10 or 11 of them. And so she mm. had to go in the whole family. They had to go to work to provide. Mm -hmm. But I would hear her reading the good news Catholic Bible with the little pictures in them, you know, mm -hmm. and she would mm -hmm. pronounce. I heard her trying to pronounce the words in Spanish as she was reading the Bible every single day of her life. Every single day she read mm -hmm. the Bible. So I had her influence my dad's uh, single brother, Craig, Uncle Craig. He would say, fear the Lord, Marlena, fear the Lord. Now as a young girl, eight or nine, I had no, I'm like, I'm supposed to be scared of God. What does that mean? <laughs> Why am I supposed to be scared of God? I'm just not afraid of him, uh, of God, you know, or, you know, um, and so that had Abuelita's influence, my uncle Craig's influence. And I think the first time I heard like the gospel presented, like, you know, the traditional way that people use it in evangelicalism was when I was four years old. Um, I lived in California for a little bit because my dad was in the military. Um, and uh, my next door neighbor was a, and his family were African-Americans. His name was Kabari. He was my best friend <laughs> when I was little. And his mm -hmm. mom invited me to, uh, I would think it's a, v a VBS maybe or something else. It was on their lawn where they talked about Jesus mm -hmm. and his right connected to our house. Our houses were connected basically. And yeah. I remember saying to her when I was four years old, so you're saying that if Jesus didn't die for us, the whole world would go to hell, like everybody. Mm. She's like, yeah. And um, 
and also she took me, I think the first time I went to church was to her black church. All I remember is like a huge mass choir. I felt like we were sitting in the nosebleed section. Maybe we weren't, but as a four or five year old, whenever I went, you know, everything looks huge. Yeah. And I remember their purple robes in the front. That was in California, but that was the first time I think I went to church. I was christened and baptized and christened in the Roman Catholic church um, in Puerto mm-hmm. Rico. So like my family's influence on my mom's side is Roman Catholic. And my dad, I mm-hmm. think, I mean, I know he's Protestant. I think they were kind of Methodist and, um, hmm. but nominal, all nominal right. uh, at the time with mm-hmm. my mom and dad, I wouldn't say that now I would say, you know, they're believers, but so I had all these mm-hmm. influences. And when I was young, um, I keep saying when I was young, this all happened when I was young, but Mm-hmm. I would always had a sense of the divine about God. I always had a sense mm. that there was something more like when I looked at the moon and thought it was following me, you know, that same mm-hmm. year when I was four years old, the same time we talked yeah. about, I always knew there was something. I had this sense that there was more to me, something supernatural. Mm-hmm. And so I would, you know, read the Bible two to four hours a day after I was done with my chores from the ages about 10 to 14 and because I could identify with people in scripture and I'm like, if God could do it for them, they could do it for me. So that's kind of the story. <laughs> One of the things in, in the book around page 50, 54, I really appreciated was talking about repentance, but also about the sacrament of confession and how the Protestant Reformation went too far and took out that sacrament. Um, And you say um, repentance is a turning. We can also think of it as making room for God. When we repent, we give him a comfortable and comforting place in which to dwell, a home. We prepare a place for him. Our preparing a place for him happens a reflection of his preparing a place for us. And I've been thinking about this myself, about how with the Protestant Reformation, a lot of things were rejected, including um, the role of the priest as a mediator and and spiritual direction and formal confession so that you would maybe still have possibly the weight of guilt that you could take to God perhaps, but there isn't a kind of, there isn't a sort of regular uh, tending to that. And that's kind of gotten rid of. But I think that by tossing that so far to the side in Protestantism, a lot of other problems were, were created, which is what you're, you're kind of getting at. And, and then there's this piece in on page 50, where you talk about Father Alexander, and I'm not sure how to pronounce Shmammon. his name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, thank you, because I was not going to get that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and he writes, um, it is easy indeed to confess that I have not fasted on prescribed days or missed my prayers or become angry. It's quite a different thing, however, to realize suddenly that I have defiled and lost my spiritual beauty or that I am far away from my real home, my real life, and that something precious and pure and beautiful has been hopelessly broken in the very texture of my experience. Yet this, and only this, is repentance. And therefore, it is also a deep desire to return, to go back, to recover that lost home. I was just hoping that maybe you could speak towards this issue 
in some of your own words and what you were driving at in those areas of the book. Yeah, Lisa, as you spoke, things were emanating from me. I was listening to what you were saying (laughs) that I haven't really articulated before, um, but maybe others have. I think we're, I mean, part of it, we're dying in our sins and, um, or our sins are, I heard uh, Eastern Orthodox, another one, uh, Father Sarah from Holland, I think he's in Texas, say that sin is not nutritious. Uh, just heard him like mm. the other day say that. Like it's it's mm. bad for you. It leads to death and death in relationships, death, you know, uh, the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life, right? Romans 6, 23. And it's not just like physical death, right? It is physical death, but it's also destruction and corruption and um, anti-shalom, anti-Christ. That's what sin does in us. I mean, it destroys, it's, we see this with the racism. It destroys our um, relationships with people as individuals, but groups. It, it hurts the earth, the pollution on the earth. It's just mm-hmm. wide ranging and ubiquitous destruction um, mm-hmm. when we let it go unchecked. And, I was thinking about like, obviously, um, if you know a little bit about me and, and, and I, 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 yes, I look back, I could say I'm influenced by the Roman Catholic tradition. There might be a level of grace in there because I was baptized and christened, but also mm-hmm. the Eastern church. I learned about the saints and the fathers and mothers and seminary, mm-hmm. at Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York. Um, and it was a wonderful experience where I'm like, oh, there are other people like mm. me that think the way I do, which mm-hmm. I didn't really get so much in Protestantism. I'm not, I mean, I'm still yeah. Protestant, but I thought like, you know, people would say, well, I just don't think about the world that way. I'm like, but there are other people that do, the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox. I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. I don't like my people in spiritual formation. <laughs> but, um, yeah. and obviously yeah. the Protestant Reformation it needed to reform a lot of the problems mm-hmm. in the church. And you and I know, and others know that Luther originally, he didn't want to leave the church. He just wanted to reform mm-hmm. it. Um, right. But I think we're, I said earlier, we're dying in our sins. I mean, with our American culture too, because we're individualistic. Um, I was talking to Charlotte Donlin, who has a book coming out on loneliness too. I read her book. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. we're lonelier talking to mm-hmm. Ed Suzuki too, wrote a book about the digital age, all these things mm-hmm. and um, kind of multiply so that we can sin and live even not just sin, but also live in anonymity almost. And so, mm-hmm. you know, no one knows what's going on with me unless I mm-hmm. tell them. But if we have, uh, you mentioned a spiritual director you know, a pastor, a priest, mm-hmm. someone that's wise. And um, I'm careful to say in my book that not all people that have those positions are wise. They could harm you. Right. So you have to mm-hmm. be, you know, with the right people. But mm-hmm. I think it's, uh, you know, some, uh, um, you know, churches use accountability partners or groups that's similar. You're only as safe as your accountability partner, I guess, <laughs> you know, if, if they're not very mm-hmm. wise, because hey, hey, that's no big problem, you know, but mm-hmm. I think having someone that knows us, you know, like that knows that, um, as you talk about in your own work, it's com- spiritual companioning, walking mm-hmm. with us so th- mm-hmm. that someone can say, hey, you know, you're kind of getting out of line there. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, that's 
I actually, that's not the kind of language I use getting out of line. It's more, I use the language you can use towards <laughs> life or towards death. You know, you're moving towards right. death. Right, right. Like I think to myself, am I moving towards death or am I moving towards life and flourishing? When I'm thinking about repentance, am I going to choose life or am I going to choose death? Well, life is the way that God has laid out for us. He wants us to have life. He wants us to flourish. Mm-hmm. He wants us to be who he's called us to be in him. Mm-hmm. And I think we need help in our repentance that we can't do it alone. You know, mm-hmm. this is not being talked about in a church mm-hmm. or you you only hear about it at the outset, when you first start to follow Jesus, whether you're Calvinist or not, you know, wherever you, that point where you're like, I'm, okay, I'm deciding to follow Jesus and go God's way. That's not the only time you have to repent. I think repent is, mm. I agree with the, I think it's the Jesuits is a daily conversion because mm. I can um, start to go to the way of death with how I treat my children or husband or friends, or if I have, um, Mm -hmm. uh, I've talked about this with other people, but if I'm being annoyed by um, certain people in the church that really, that that really get my goat, (laughs) like um, Mm -hmm. because of how they treat up, mistreat other people, that's times Mm -hmm. where I have a big problem. Like I'm, I get madder and more upset with people in the church than people that don't claim to follow Jesus because I don't, I don't expect you to, walk in the way that Jesus said, if you don't claim to follow him, but people that claim to follow Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> you should know better. That's right. And the harm that's being done to so many, um, I get really angry and upset, but God like drills in mm. and Jesus drills in. He's like, if you are angry with someone, you've committed murder. Echoing Psalm 15 to, it says to love our neighbor from our hearts in Psalm 51, you know, may there be good in my innermost parts. So I might come across as like, a, you know, a good person to some people, but I know what dwells inside of me. And I have to name that to people like name mm. it to, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell my husband, Sean, sometimes I'll call my pastors. Like one time I, 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 I haven't shared this with anyone, but I shared it with my pastors a few years ago. And I was like, yeah, I was visiting a friend and I started to get angry that I have to struggle so much financially while they seem to have it easy. You know, I was just having a hard time. I was a little bit bitter because, you know, I'm like the medical bills pile up, our cars break down, yada, yada. And I had to call my pastors. I have a male and female pastor, Pastor Russ, Pastor Joni. And I said to him, I'm really struggling with this and uh, something and I'd like it to confess it with you. And mm-hmm. I was kind of embarrassed, but I, <laughs> I sat in front of him and I just said, listen, I went to a friend's house and I love her and she's like the most beautiful person in the world. One of the most beautiful people. So it has nothing to do with anything they've done. It's just like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they have nice houses, their cars, and they don't seem to financial struggling. And we're just trying to make it. And we follow mm-hmm. Jesus this whole time. And why are we struggling? You know, <laughs> they haven't. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, so I will do that because I don't want to let that take a foothold in my life. Yeah. I don't want to have a bad attitude. I don't want to be bitter, but I also have right. a spiritual director. Um, and I try to tell people, and, and I think I try, you know, in the book, I gave an example of just confessing and telling the truth about mm. who we are, because I don't want to let death move in our lives. But I, I, I mean, I think it's very essential to have a spiritual director, but it would be also very good to, to have someone in your, your church that, that might see you on a day in and day out basis. I don't mm. think we should limit it to one, but sometimes we're not in yeah. a safe place. We can't, we have to, that's okay. But ideally there's yeah. someone that sees you on a daily basis where you could say, 
you know, this is what's going on with me, where you could tell the truth about who you are and hear them say, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. So I, that's what I meant when I was saying that, um, I'm yeah. kind of roundabout way I can made it to the answer there, that <laughs> I don't think that when we threw out, people are like, oh, the priest, you can go straight to Jesus. Yes, you can go straight to Jesus. But mm-hmm. I think the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox are onto something. To hear someone say you are forgiven or to companion and follow you with God, I think is needed for our spiritual, emotional, and physical health. Yeah. The social component of another human being walking with you is a big difference than keeping things to yourself. Um, When the Bible says, confess your sins to one another, it's not because someone's taking the place of Jesus. It's because we'll be better off checking in with each other. And and I think, I know personally and and how I grew up, there's a lot of shame associated with confessing sin. So you'd you'd think, well, maybe it won't matter if I don't say anything. And, And I think that that can keep us from saying, you know, I struggle with this right now. And then the person's like, I, I have too. And then, okay, I'm going to keep an eye on that. Let's, let's, um, we can pull that weed out. God's already forgiven us, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to, you know, get in this rut and, and start this pattern, uh, that leads us, like you're saying, toward death and, really disease. Like I think of it like mm-hmm. the Eastern fathers do too. I, I think in, in my book that this is not a plug or anything, I might cut this out, but in my book, um, I talk about instead of looking at crime and punishment, which fills us with shame that's already been forgiven, that if we can think of going from sickness to wellness, that we can get ill and then we need the great physician to come back in and heal us and heal our minds when they get diseased with, with ideas of, um, with the temptations, you know, whether it's envy, lust, uh, wrath, uh, we can have all those things come in and they're normal, but it doesn't mean you stay with them. Yes. And I think you should keep this because I, your book is needed. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, that's the, kind of the way you could become diseased and sick. And that's right. James is it James five sixteen. confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So what that you may be healed and yeah, yeah. why there's so much sickness, you hit it. Um, I'm not saying that's the only, and I'm not saying, and it might not even be sin. It might be like, you know what? I just feel lonely today or yeah. I mean, is that a sin? I don't think so. That's the human condition. No, it's so it's normal. not always just confessing sins, but it's kind of being real right. about mm-hmm. how you are feeling and what's going on in your life hmm. so that you know you're, that you're not alone. And I mean, I was thinking about as you were too, as you're speaking and talking about sickness and disease and maybe just saying lonely. Me and the Garden of mm-hmm. Gethsemane, Jesus said, can you guys just pray with me? I need you to be mm-hmm. here with me. So Peter, James, and John. And he was being very vulnerable and he was mm-hmm. dependent on their presence. I mean, Jesus mm-hmm. depended and on the presence of his disciples. And I talk about the, the woman at the well for a drink of water yeah. refreshment. Jesus, yeah. um, he didn't discriminate as far as like man or woman or human being. He's, he's like, I need you. Jesus needed other people. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. too. He, he could have just went to God the Father about everything and not said anything to the disciples. But we see that he didn't do that. Yeah, it, and isn't that a beautiful picture of how humanity works? It, if anybody 
you would think wouldn't need somebody. Wouldn't it be Jesus? Like, well, he's God, right? How he's, he's super powered. Yeah. <laughs> right? Why would he need anybody? But he's like, he's thirsty. He gets sad. He gets lonely. He, mm-hmm. he gets despondent. He asks for help. And like, are we better than that? <laughs> I don't think so. You know, so it, it's a really is a, a convicting thing to say, don't act like you're like you've got it more together than Jesus, you're going to need people to be with you and you're going to need help too. I think that's a, that's an excellent point. Yeah. And you mentioned the word shame. I I don't talk a lot about that. I don't even know if I mentioned that word. Maybe I do, but you know, shame can keep us from telling others things. And I mean, that again, leads Mm -hmm. to the sickness. And so repentance, Mm -hmm. I mean, shame will, the devil, the demons will use shame to keep us from repenting and from confessing to others. And um, like you said, I mean, we're not a, I mean, Jesus needed to confess that he was lonely or needed help and we need to be able mm-hmm. to do the same. Mm. One of the things you point out, I was, um, I didn't know this about John Wesley is that he probably sold millions of dollars worth in tracks and, um, and then he died without anything to his name because he gave that all away. That was on page 101. Uh, and you write, um, John Wesley preached that Christians should not merely tithe, but give away all extra income. Once the family and creditors were taken care of, he believed that with increasing income, the Christian standard of giving should increase, not his standard of living. And um, that was new to me. And I thought that was really, that was really beautiful because what I've talked about on Twitter and I've heard you talk about is is something that can happen when we get reliant on maybe what we have, maybe we get, we get greedy, we can get greedy with it and how important it is to remember people's felt needs and give materially to people who need it and not, you know, start accumulating. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about that section in the book about, I guess it's around page a hundred and what you were talking about there. Yeah, I was talking about generosity, you know, God being rich towards God and other people. I mean, the early church, they do not mess around. And I think it's an antidote we're talking about healing to our American individualism and our greed. And I'm talking to the United States. It could be Western Western greed. You know, we have a lot. Um, you know, I and I try to remind myself a few years ago, I was in South Africa for work and I was just, you know, talking to people that drank from dirty water, even those cows defecated in it and whatever Mm -hmm. downstream. And, you know, they're like, we can't do anything about it. And we're thirsty, you know, Mm -hmm. like they can't, they lived in shanties, like, you know, plywood and metal shanties. Like what you see, I've been in India. It reminded me when I was in India and, um, and I've seen very poor people here in the United States. Like, you know, I thought I grew up poor. And I did, but there's was poorer people than me. Uh, I've seen that in yeah. uh, Appalachia, Appalachia, Appalachia. Uh, yeah. I've seen very, very poor people worked with them. Uh, when my husband was in grad school, after we just got married at getting his master's degree in um, Southeastern Ohio and West Virginia and Kentucky, that region. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen such poor people uh, in the United mm-hmm. States. And so, and those were mostly white people, all white people that were poor. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so 
but the early church was like, uh, like the Didache is like, you know, hold on to your stuff, let it sweat in your hand until you know who to give it to. <laughs> the uh, St. Basil and Chrysostom was like, if you have stuff in your shoe, if you have a jacket or more than one jacket or something in your closet and you have a brother or sister that needs it or of someone in poverty, then you are robbing the poor. The Catholic catechism calls it thievery, right? We're, mm. We are stealing from the poor. And so, you know, I we have to hold things loosely. I mean, even mm. our favorite pair of shoes, I guess. So, mm. I mean, I think like the early church, they're like, if, you know, if I come across someone, they need my jacket. And I talk about my blue Columbia mm-hmm. winter jacket that I've had for I don't know how long now. But that's also a practice there. I mean, I'm like, I could get a new jacket, but do I really need a new jacket? I don't need a new jacket. Again, I'm not being judgmental. I'm not being judgmental. People that have two jackets, but I'm talking about myself here. But if I come across someone on the streets here in Toledo, wherever they need a jacket, it's theirs. I mean, um, and I, um, I mean, this is not to uplift myself, but I'm just going to give an example. There were asylum seekers that people in my church um, would, we would, I would translate for them in Spanish. They were coming from the border, going to their sponsors before the U.S. shut the border down. You know, they didn't have anything, nothing, because they left it all behind because they were fleeing the cartels, violence, poverty, abuse. And so I was look in my closet, my girls, I'm like, okay, I don't know who we're meeting tonight, but I'm like, Sean, um, and we've already tried to reduce, you know, what we have. I, are there shirts that I can take with me, a sweatshirt, my jacket, little toys that they don't play with anymore to give to people that need it. I don't need to go buy. I mean, it's something that's nice too. I'm not going to give them a piece of garbage. And um, I just think that we have so much in America and Christians do too. And it's, uh, you know, like uh, the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, I believe it is where Jesus says it's the, you know, the, the concerns over the things in life and our wealth that's struggling out the gospel in us. And mm. we have to kind of live lightly so that we could live wisely. You know, uh, is it attributed yeah. to mother Teresa? I've heard Shane Claiborne and other people say it live simply so that others may simply live. And I mm. actually think, I mean, in America, we do not like to hear that. And I, you know, sometimes I don't like to hear that. I mean, um, do I really, you know, should I buy another book or should I use this money for something? I'm looking at my bookcase as I'm thinking you. That's not a judgment, Lisa. It's just saying that that we can consider our lives and 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 what we have, you know, and there are people, here's another example. There are people that have like mansions of houses. Okay. If we're gonna really be like the early church. I don't know, let's say they have five or six bedroom houses. And there's elderly people too that live alone. Again, not judging. Do they need it? Could they host someone? It could be, it could be, yes, there's danger and safety involved. But is there a way that we could give of what we have to other people? Because, I mean, again, they do not pull any punches in the early church. This was the earliest teaching in the Didache, uh, St. Bale, St. Chrysostom. And I actually think here in America, I mean, we, you know, you know, this famous story, we only tithe like 2% or less. And, but then people say, oh, you know, the government should not provide for the poor. It should be the church's responsibility. I'm like, really? Like, you're going to cut your budget by however much to fund other people's health care 
their yeah. food. I mean, we don't even, I it's mean, we can barely not die. happening now. It's that's the thing that I, that I think I, I've heard that, that it's about uh, 2% or something. And, uh, and still churches are, are meeting needs in the community. I was, I was thinking, I was hearing um, people talking about taxing the churches. And I thought, well, a lot of them, the mega churches, you probably could tax and they wouldn't feel a thing, but a lot of the little churches would have to close their doors and they couldn't, they couldn't help the community or, or um, pay the pastors if you did that. And I think about there, there is enough to go around. Yes. If everybody gives, there is enough. And, um, the government can help out. And that's also, that's also how we all give. But I think about how, you know, there really is enough food to feed everybody in the country, but also in the world. It's yeah. a matter of distributing it and it's a matter of not taking a ton. And, yeah. I, and I, and, and just, to not point it at other people and to make sure we're pointing at ourselves is, is that what you're saying about the jacket makes me think if I don't try to have, if I don't set my eyes on the most expensive and prized thing, prized car, prized outfits, then I won't want to cling to that really hard. Like what are we clinging to too hard that if we need to give it away to someone who needs it, that it will seem like a loss, you know, like that's, that's the thing I think we need to hold all of our stuff loosely because, and think of it as not ours. That, that can be hard if you start to like, and this was my situation you know, when we, we both grew up poor, like I had ate a lot of government cheese, <laughs> but, um, but when, I remember as a kid thinking, I will never, I never want to be poor. I want to have a great job. I never want to have to struggle like this. I never want to have to be, have an empty stomach. And then in my adulthood, I, I thought, oh, this has prepared me. I, I gave that up. You know, we, we live very simply because I realized the folly of that. Thank God early on, like in, in my early twenties, I thought, wait a minute, what's, what's the point? Like, so I'll have a bunch of stuff. So what? Like it, that's not going to even that's not going to even work to me. I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be happy knowing I have something and a whole bunch of other people don't. You know, I'd rather like it. It just kind of dawned on me that I don't want to be in a position where I'm, you know, going to get the water turned off or something on us. Right. But at the same time. And, and I can lose my way with this. I can have my path obscured. I'm not saying I'm, I'm doing a great job with this. If my view about the material is in proper perspective, I won't clutch it too hard. And, I, and it won't seem like a loss to, get, to give it away. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I, yeah, I was thinking about this the other day, Lisa. I, I mean, I am rich compared to most of the world. And mm-hmm. you know, I live in a nice neighborhood. Um, um, I, I mean, this, this chapter, you know, I, I agree with you. I don't do not want to come off as if, oh, oh my word, Marlena, you are so holy. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was thinking, you know what? I am, I'm still attached to whatever. I'm still too attached now. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, in this case, I don't think Jesus said, sell everything you have. That mandate didn't go out to everyone. It was that particular, the rich young ruler. All mm-hmm. I'm trying to say, you had a particular problem. Yeah. All I'm trying to say in this chapter is that I think that that we in America, that I myself are 
too tied to things and that it crowds out the life of God in us and that God is calling us to be rich towards him. And just, Mm. I just think, um, you know, the people talk about the American dream and um, I just think like Wesley, you started this out with um, Mm -hmm. like Pope Francis, I mentioned and Rich Mullins and lots of other women who gave like St. Macrina women gave their estates and their stuff away uh, to follow Jesus and live simply what we do with our money. We either serve God or money. And I think that applies to, to me and everyone else and that we could live more simply that so that others can simply live. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that I realized reading your book is how, how blessed we are, you and I are to live in a country that you can grow up in such a rough situation. And then like you're, you were wondering, is God going to allow me to get my PhD? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, what a first world problem is that? Right. <laughs> right. Because, because like not, that is not what a lot of people in other countries are going, oh, I hope I can get my PhD. This is really bugging me. Right. You know? and, and I'm thinking, dang, that's a long way from Marlena, who was, you know, eight or 10 years old, wondering if something's going to be in the fridge. Right? right. And I thought, Thank God, praise God that that this is one of her concerns now. You know that yeah. that's <laughs> I mean, there you go, and and that you can that you and I can both think of like who could we uh, give some to out of the abundance, and and that we don't live in a place where we're gonna we know for the rest of our lives we're gonna have to scrounge and scrounge and scrounge and yeah. just scrape to get by, and that that is actually one of our problems is wondering what to do with the overflow. It's like, that is a crazy, uh, crazy turn of events. I wasn't expecting, like I wasn't expecting to, to like live a long life for whatever reason. You know, it just, I think sometimes when you grow up with a lot of scarcity, you, you don't know, you, you don't really plan for the future necessarily because you're, you don't even think about it. You know, it's just kind of, it's just kind of whatever's before you, you think about that, but but now having having gone through hard times you're prepared for suffering in different ways but also you're you're blinded to some things too so it it is really interesting how god prepares us for different situations and i think um and then when we finally do have more abundance perhaps we can help people who have grown up in affluence to see um hey that actually doesn't belong to you like i I know you think it does. <laughs> I know you, I mean, it's really cool that you have that, but, but there are pieces of it that, that really are gods, you know, that, that really need to be really, people have thought, people have said to me in, in conservative circles, even my husband as well, that it's wrong to say redistribute wealth. I said, well, it's not that I'm not saying someone should force you to do it, but redistribute your wealth. <laughs> Actually, do that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. take it upon yourself to redistribute it somehow, because I think that's what God would want you to do, so that less people are in need. And it's funny how, um, in my worlds, and maybe in yours too, there's uh, I have a lot of liberal progressive friends. I have a lot of conservative, even fundamentalist friends. And these, these worlds collide and and they seem sometimes to be at odds. But what does God tell us and what does the early church tell us about how to treat the poor and and how to treat our political opponents? Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it's it's kind of both sides have to give, I think. 
And now I can see it as a blessing, what I once considered a curse, as you mentioned, too. Mm -hmm. So I feel like God, I just need reminders to call me back to live like Mm -hmm. Jesus with generosity, Mm -hmm. to remember that God will provide for me like he does for the birds. But some of the, and I talked about this in chapter three, you know, when we pray for the end of hunger or Mm -hmm. our neighbors or for asylum seekers, usually Mm -hmm. God wants to use us in that Mm -hmm. Um, to help other people because he's given us a burden for that. And Mm. a lot of the way that God answers prayers, I mean, he does miracles. I do believe he does miracles now. And I have talked about that in the book, but he also Mm. uses us to give of what we have. And that's what he's always done. For some reason, God uses, we cooperate with God in his ministry and work in the world. Yeah. We are the answer to our prayers. Many times we're co-creating with God to make those prayers come to fruition. I do agree with that very much, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else about the book that you would like to point out or uh, final thoughts you have? Um, just that Dallas Willard talked about the curriculum of Christ-likeness. You know, he's like, no churches have curriculums of Christ-likeness or how to deal with anger back in the day when he wrote The Divine Conspiracy. And this is like my curriculum for Christ-likeness, I would say, that I see the American church and those who have the mic, especially I feel being bad witnesses for Jesus. Mm. I say that at the same time, what I talked about with you, I can be a bad witness for Jesus. So I'm not just pointing fingers. Yeah. I can be a bad witness for Jesus. And I think living a kenotic life of self-offering and sacrifice understood in a healthy and not abusive way. Mm-hmm is what God's calling us to. It's the way Jesus lived. And I hope that along with others in the church, this is a small contribution to refocus us on the way of Jesus and not live, you know, what we just talked about, the last thing we talked about in conspicuous consumption, self-absorption, but living for others like Jesus did, because that's what he calls us to do. Amen. So where can my listeners find you, find more about what you're doing and find you online or the socials? Yeah. Um, the quickest way to find me would be to go to MarlenaGraves.com. That's MarlenaGraves.com. My website, it, it'll direct you to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and some of my writings and um, this podcast eventually too. And so, uh, yes, find me there and you can contact me there. And I'd love to hear what, if anyone contacts me, that's a listener to uh, spark my muse. I'm happy to, to go back and forth with you. Thank you, Lisa.